The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very warm welcome to Scorebox. We're live from Downing Street. We've got Jeff in Berlin and Karen, of course, holding the forward in the London studio. Uh, these are your headlines. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson fighting for his political life, sacking former ally Michael Gove after senior cabinet ministers urge him to quit in a late afternoon confrontation at Downing Street. The last needs, thing, because no, this time, has, but, this not, has, but I'm not going to step down. And the last thing this country needs, frankly, is election. Fed officials warn entrenched inflation poses a significant risk as minutes from the latest Fed show the FOMC is lining up even more restrictive policy in a bid to tackle inflation. France prepares to nationalise troubled utility EDF as Prime Minister Elizabeth Warren lays out the government's increasingly assertive plan to secure energy supply in the face of spiralling prices. We must have full control over our electricity production and its performance. We must ensure our sovereignty in the face of the consequences of war and the colossal challenges ahead. Here in Berlin, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz slams the Russian president for using gas and energy as a weapon against Germany. This as the Bundestag grapples with proposed new energy security rules as the prospect of a bailout for Uniper hoves into view. We are doing this through new laws that are being swiftly agreed upon here, fast-tracking through all planning missions so we can have the first facilities ready, perhaps as soon as the new year. Still dominating the headlines over here, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has survived the most dangerous day of his premiership yet. More than 40 members of the government resigned, while their leader faced grillings in Parliament as once loyal members of his cabinet waited in Downing Street to tell him his time was up. Attorney General Suella Breverman urged the Prime Minister to quit on television and launched her own bid for the leadership. However, Johnson has refused to step down, instead sacking cabinet heavyweight Michael Gove. This is the powerful committee of backbench Tory MPs get set to vote on new leadership rules next week, which could pave the way for Johnson's removal. But it's unclear what will happen if they are unsuccessful. In a heated exchange in Parliament, Johnson ruled out both resigning and calling a snap election. What I'm going to do is get on with no, uh, I need uh, to uh, answer your question. Where you're quite right, and where I passionately agree, I need you to answer this Will question, Prime Minister. And with you is that I uh, see absolutely if no need. Prime whatever, Minister, I'm going to ask you once more. An election. If you have lost the confidence of your MPs and you're required to step down as leader of the Conservative Party, you will not seek to dissolve Parliament. Well, I, I think the last thing this country case. needs, the, because I, we the need, last thing, because no, this house, but, this not, house, but I'm not going to step down, and the last thing this country needs, frankly, is election. What because needs, this house, what this, uh, on the contrary, I think the, 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 the risk is, the risk is uh, that uh, people continue to focus on 
uh, this type of thing, and I think that is a mistake. And as you can see from the headlines, Steve is still camped outside Downing Street for the big events. Steve, we saw a tidal wave of resignations yesterday, but the Prime Minister is still clinging on. I don't think any of us thought he would resign quickly. Just walk us through what happens from here. Um, what I'm going to do, actually, Karen, I'm going to walk you through what happened yesterday before we go on to what's next. We've got a great guest waiting in the wings because it was the most extraordinary day and there were so many events I think we should just talk about. First of all, of course, uh, we saw this wave of resignations when I was standing here this time yesterday. Uh, it was only about 10. Now, by the close of business yesterday, we were talking about 45, 46 resignations, uh, including uh, Simon Hart, one of the latest uh, out of the cabinet uh, to resign. He's the, the Welsh secretary. So we've now lost uh, three secretaries of state. In fact, four secretaries of state, of course, because the levelling up minister, Michael Gove, was sacked for disloyalty uh, during uh, the early evening where it was, um, uh, he was accused of briefing the press before going into the Prime Minister to try and persuade him to resign. So you lost Michael Gove, Simon Hart and of course already Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid as well, plus again this tidal wave of over 40 minister and ministerial aides as well. Before that as well though we saw Prime Minister's question time, a bruising affair with Sakir Starmer. He gets six questions at the start of PMQs at midday yesterday uh, talking about the charge of the lightweight brigade accusing the rest of the cabinet of just not being uh, top draw politicians he also said is not this the first recorded case of a sinking ship fleeing the rat as well then we saw this amazing resignation speech uh, from Sajid Javid as well he said for months now he'd been treading the tightrope between loyalty and integrity and that had become impossible in recent months I will never lose uh, my integrity uh, and then as I say things carried on throughout the rest of the day as well. We're all glued to this liaison committee uh, briefing earlier on, or with the, uh, the Prime Minister coming up against some really hard questions from MPs in his own party as well, and uh, again, reaffirming that he would not resign and carry on with the job in hand, and then talking about, well, this is extraordinary, talking about unveiling an economic plan next week with Nadeem Zahawi. Nadeem Zahawi's been in the job less than 24 hours before it emerged, uh, and I was reading the Times report on this one as well, that he's been working on his own leadership bid for months uh, and that he was part of the delegation of cabinet ministers later on including a lot of loyalties, loyalists including um, Priti Patel the Home Secretary, Brandon Lewis Northern Ireland Secretary, Grant Shapps the Transport Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng all men and women who are stunningly loyal uh, to Boris Johnson or have been up to this point trying to persuade the British Prime Minister that the time was up and of course uh, subsequently we found out that Michael Gove had been sacked as well. That's not all, Karen. It went on. Uh, we've also saw Graham Braid, again, one of the, the men in grey suits that we've talked about, uh, the, the people in the background of the party, coming to Downing Street, saying to the Prime Minister that if he did not resign, the 1922 committee is going to have this vote on Monday to bring in his new executive committee, after which new rules would be brought forward where a second confidence vote, because under the current rules you can't have one for another 11 months, having had one uh, late last month, and uh, change the rules so there could be another confidence vote. Now, under numbers being tallied around at the moment, the Prime Minister could perhaps only rely on between 40 and 80 MPs backing him, which means that up to 300 Conservative MPs, perhaps even more, will be voting against him. So hence, he would potentially lose a confidence vote. So as you say, well, what happens next? And well, today, uh, 
we haven't had one resignation yet and we're already just past 6am so it's going to be another extraordinary day there is no doubt about it but it's very interesting to see uh, just how Boris Johnson plays this next because one of the things he did say in that liaison committee uh, interview or, or interrogation from those committee members was that uh, he would, wouldn't, wouldn't resign while we still had a functioning government well some government departments do not have ministers of state at the moment or have only ministers of state uh, who are in the House of Lords so they are not functioning at the moment as well where is he going to fill these 40 plus 45 46 uh, ministerial resignations where is he going to fill those positions from if the backbenches aren't supporting him and there's also many many other questions about where constitutionally this goes forward as well would Boris Johnson if he finds himself under threat have some form of scorched earth policy where he calls a general election because he believes that he personally has a mandate to carry on. Now, I've been listening to a lot of the polling as well going on from a lot of people who got right the last election, who got right a lot of last votes. Uh, and, of course, this landslide uh, for Boris Johnson and actually saying that a lot of that support for him of 2019 has now eroded. And we've seen some of the figures not only amongst the general population, but also amongst those who voted Conservative, voted for Boris Johnson, uh, and where they see him standing now. And the numbers are not as flattering as they were anywhere near as we were even a couple of months ago. Steve, the Prime Minister has been seen as some form of a political animal, uh, very talented, very gifted when it comes to communicating with voters at certain times. Obviously, this has been such a huge setback, recent scandals. And the big question for many months was if he, if he left, who would replace him? But the jostling certainly started yesterday. It feels as though the party would just not be willing to leave this up to, to Rishi Sunak to have a clean run at uh, the top job. Oh, absolutely not, Karen. No, no. I think Rishi Sunak, uh, unfortunately, his currency has fallen quite aggressively, I would suggest, in recent months. And, and well, I mean, I don't know if he's still the favourite or people think, but I think there's a lot of players involved. I mean, very interesting as well. Um, the uh, Attorney General, Suela Breverman, uh, yesterday also urging the Prime Minister to quit, saying she wouldn't quit her position. She wanted to see functioning government still as well, but actually putting her hat in the ring in very early days. We've already heard that Nadim Zahawi, according to the Times, of London has been working on his bid for a long time as well. Penny Mordaunt is another one people are looking at as well. Uh, Sajid Javid himself as well. So a whole host of characters as well. And, and, and this is the point as well. At a moment of national crisis, global crisis, of course, we can talk about the multiple crises that we, you and I talk about on a daily basis. The fact of the matter is the Prime Minister thinks he's the best person uh, to be in that job. But if he isn't in that job, then what happens next is quite delicious and very, very complicated as well. Because let's just go through one or two of the scenarios as well. And um, if he were to resign, who would be the Prime Minister or take on that role as in almost a caretaker role, a lame duck role, so to speak, uh, in the period where we have the Conservative leadership election for the next Prime Minister? Um, would it be Boris Johnson himself, uh, which is quite an extraordinary scenario as well? Would it be Dominic Raab, who's the Deputy Prime Minister at the moment? Dominic Raab, of course, could potentially put himself forward as a leadership candidate. So, so to be a caretaker Prime Minister at the same time, that would seem uh, mildly controversial as well. I did hear an outside um, bet on the radio this morning, which I thought was quite extraordinary, that perhaps a senior figure from the Conservative Party could act as some form of caretaker. Uh, and uh, the name being mentioned, and I'm sure she would find this quite delicious, was potentially Theresa May, who would just be a safe pair of hands in the meantime whilst we had the leadership election going on. These are far-fetched scenarios, as indeed are concerns about the dissolution of Parliament as well, and a potentially a general election as well going forward. But all these scenarios cannot be discounted, Karen. Times, uh, really, Steve.
And let's uh, broaden out the conversation because Matt Beach has joined us, Director of the Centre for British Politics, University of Hull and UC Berkeley. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Matt. We were just pointing out uh, there in our coverage that uh, incredible twists and turns down at Downing Street as uh, many of the ministers, uh, cabinet ministers, try to remove the prime minister at this point. And just flesh this out. There's been no shortage of leadership challenges in recent years. How different is this one? I think it's pretty different in the sense that you've got a huge proportion of the government payroll vote have actually resigned. I mean, that last count that I saw, you were talking about 45 members of the government. Typically, a government payroll votes about 100, maybe a wee bit over 100. And that's not even including backbench conservatives who have been calling for the prime minister to go for a long time. So it's pretty seismic, I would say. Uh, Matt, there's a lot of scenarios and you, like all of us, are just pouring through these. Tell our viewers about the LaSalle principles as well from 1950. I think it's probably worth just digging into this a little bit as well, which is a set of principles laid down by, I believe, a letter coming from uh, the private sector of George VI in 1950, talking about the kind of conditions uh, which the monarch would refuse to dissolve Parliament if indeed the Prime Minister uh, were to ask. I think that's quite a fascinating scenario. Three principles. The first would be, um, is the government of the day viable? Can it get its business through? Secondly, would it be um, responsible economically uh, for the monarch not to um, acquiesce to her first minister's, her prime minister's wishes of um, dissolving parliament? And thirdly, is there an immediately obvious candidate? In other words, would there be someone from within the government of the day, the governing party of the day, that could, um, you know, step in and, and, and most importantly, step in and carry the confidence of a majority of parliament? So in, in layman's terms, carry the confidence of the, of the Conservative Party. Now, I will just have to say this. That is a different political era. And it is not immediately obvious that the LaSalle's principles, in my opinion, um, sit well with the, co co the current cabinet manual's view, which expresses a convention that says the monarch must not be pulled in to political decisions. So on one hand, you've got these LaSalle principles from 1950, a different era before Her Majesty's reign, actually. And the other, you've got a principle set out in the cabinet manual that, that, that says the monarch, you know, pretty well established convention must never be drawn into politics. Matt. So I'm not quite sure it's immediately obvious which one trumps which. Uh, and Matt, the, the point you made there very clearly, and thank you very much indeed for going through that, I thought that was very interesting, uh, is you talked about principles, government principles and, and principles regarding when the monarch is or isn't brought into this crisis as well. But does Boris Johnson act by those same principles or is it all about his own political survival or potentially a scorched earth policy? Well, on the, okay, um, where you sit on your attitude towards the prime minister will determine where you stand on this issue. Um, so on one hand, um, it's pretty clear that the prime minister's position politically is untenable, um, not, you know, because of the whole what you know allegations and what he you know he said he didn't know then he then he found out he did know about uh, promoting uh, the former deputy chief whip and that raises questions about the prime minister's judgment let alone the party gate there's going to be an inquiry next autumn so on one hand 
I think it's pretty clear. Uh, I think the public knows that his position's untenable. On the other hand, he technically still commands a majority of support in the House of Commons as we are speaking now. That can change. And until and unless the Prime Minister of the day, the leader of the largest party in Parliament, ceases to command a majority of support of members of the House of Commons, he or she, he in this case, is in situ and they remain primus inter pares, first among equals. Now, I think that can change swiftly. And if I'm being honest, I think it will. I think what you'll find is in the coming hours, other senior ministers will will determine that it's politically untenable, even though it's not constitutionally untenable yet. They will call for his resignation. And I think events will move swiftly. Matt, I think that's uh, fascinating. And, and I want to go back to Primus Inter Pares as well, because I think what a lot of people are talking about as well is the difference between the British system and indeed the United States presidential system, because there is a question now of whether the British Prime Minister is seeing himself as more of a presidential figure rather than, as you quite rightly say, uh, the Primus Inter Pares, i.e. a minister the first amongst equals as well. Because as far as the British government system and the unwritten constitution is concerned, we understand that actually uh, you vote for a party which then elects its leader or has its leader which then uh, becomes the Prime Minister rather than the US system that votes for a president. Do you think there is some confusion in the building behind me at number 10 Downing Street uh, about just what system we're operating under at the moment? No, not really. That accusation has been levelled at Mrs Thatcher. It was levelled very much at Tony Blair. It was was been levelled at uh, pretty much all prime ministers with large majorities. And there's an extensive debate in the academic scholarship about this. So no, I don't. I don't think it's a, a misapprehension of this prime minister or of this administration. And it's certainly not a new one in history. What I would say is we don't have an un, an unwritten constitution. We have a we have a, we have an uncodified constitution. Our constitution's forms of laws uh, which are written and conventions which are written down and scholarly texts which are written down. So the key thing is it's uncodified. You can't go to a small little booklet with a contents page and an index and say, you know, if I want this, where do I find this right or this obligation? So it's uncodified, but it's not quite ba- It's not quite correct to say it's unwritten. Matt, I want to talk about the ramifications from here because with a government majority, it looked as though we had a stable Britain at this point. We had a stable economy, we had a stable government, uh, but now times have changed. We've got a, a cost of living crisis, we've got a war in Ukraine, and we've got a, a government in disarray. And if you look at some of the early promises, even from the new chancellor about tax cuts and maybe even revisiting the corporation tax, which was a global agreement, what changes from here? Because it feels as though we now have a government acting like a minority government, one that is willing to embark upon trade-offs and incentives, just trying to woo back voters. Well, I think it, I mean I think that's quite interesting. It's not dissimilar. I'm talking to you from California, uh, where I'm here for the summer doing some research in the libraries at UC Berkeley. I mean, whilst inflation here in the United States isn't nine percent, uh, the impact of the war, uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine, is being felt also here, and you, you we have political turmoil here as well. Um, with a cost of living crisis, absolutely. So I think right across the world, you have cost of living crisis and, and, and these cost pressures are partly about oil and about Russia, but also about the uncertainty on financial markets, which war, a significant war brings. But also let's not forget a lot of these cost pressures are way before, have been rising because of COVID 
and supply chain disruption. So I think a lot of the underlying economic prob problems are much longer term than um, this situation that the Prime Minister faces, uh, absolutely. I do think you, your question is really good in the sense of it exposes the tensions at the heart of the Conservative government, in that, and this is it in a nutshell. It has to do try and do two things. It has to spend money and level up in terms of investment in roads and bridges and hospitals in northern working class red wall constituencies that they won in 2019. And at the same time, they have to govern for middle class and upper middle class uh, southern and, and Midlands English families who want lower taxes and who are doing quite nicely and who want lower taxes. Now, I think up until it, the, the devil's in the detail, but that they've been walking this, this tightrope. So I would say that that is a dilemma. And I think um, with the cost of living going up, there is increasing argument for tax cuts, which would perhaps push the Tories one way down that path rather than the other. But I guess what could be done, I think, in the future is you could have a targeted tax cuts uh, in certain sectors of the economy while still spending in the um, less um, invested provincial areas of England, um, like where I teach in, in Yorkshire normally. I'm in California temporarily. So it's a tricky thing for this government. It always was a difficult agenda to try to do to ride both horses. But um, I think I don't think the problems are just about the contemporary economics. The challenge is that the, the cost pressures across the economy have been rising since COVID and um, the war in Ukraine has just exacerbated it. Matt, a very thoughtful conversation there. We do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Matt Beach with us, Director of the Centre for British Politics, University of Hull and UC Berkeley. And of course, we'll come back to coverage with Steve a little bit later on in the programme. Meantime, uh, check on markets. We had Fed minutes to digest yesterday. The messaging that the Fed is uh, concerned about entrenched inflation and will do whatever it takes to tackle those pricing pressures, uh, including uh, entering into a recession if necessary. So the market uh, really weathering that messaging fairly well. If you consider the modest tick up we saw on the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. Uh, it was the third pause of session for some of these uh, indices, uh, the S&P and for the Nasdaq in particular, but we have had some form of a, a tech rally taking place this week, a little bit of short covering in uh, FANG stocks and other big momentum plays in the technology space. We had a, a pop of about 3.7% over the course of the week, although some of it just fading for those FANG stocks yesterday. If you look at the undercurrents here, it was uh, down by about a third of a percent. So perhaps we would have made more traction if the FANG plus stocks had played ball in that session. But uh, coming up on the show, uh, plenty ahead as uh, the French government plans to nationalise struggling utility EDF while German lawmakers grapple with the bailout for Uniper. We'll have more right after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. The French government is planning a full nationalisation of utility provider EDF. 
the country's new Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, said the government is looking to ensure its sovereignty in the face of a looming energy crisis. And let's get out to Charlotte for more. Charlotte, they've been contemplating this idea for weeks. They're almost there anyway when it comes to the stakeholding that had an EDF. This is the next step in energy security. Absolutely, Karen. And look, this was his big general speech from uh, the new Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, facing a National Assembly where, of course, her government lost the majority in Parliament. They're still the biggest party, but they lost the absolute majority. And it's a highly political moment in France, especially for a Prime Minister who's seen as a little bit of a more technocratic profile. And this was one of the big announcements, this uh, renationalization of EDF. It was partially privatized in 2005. In 200, 200, 2005, apologies. Um, so the French government already owned 84% of EDF and not as I said they will, they will own a hundred percent there as you said they had said for a long time that all options were on the table for EDF uh, yesterday the Prime Minister said to the National Parliament it was a question of um, having an energy that is decarbonized sovereign and competitive take a listen the climate emergency requires strong, radical decisions. We must have full control over our electricity production and its performance. We must ensure our sovereignty in the face of the consequences of war and the colossal challenges ahead. We must make decisions that others sitting on these benches were able to make before us at a time in history when the country also had to win the battle of energy and production. That's why I confirm to you the government's intention to own 100% of EDF's capital. But there are some key issues there with EDF. One, that half of their reactors at the moment are stopped because of some issues there of corrosion, for example. So they need some repairs. Some heavy investments are needed at EDF. They also, you remember that President Macron announced before the presidential election that they want, he wanted to build six to 14 new reactors in the country by 2050. Some of them would be EPR reactors. We know some of those, some of those projects have been hugely delayed and cost a huge amount of money. So EDF needs some of that money. And the debt idea was standing at 43 billion euros at the end of last year and it's expected that it could go up to 65 billion this year and they say one of the big factors impact they had on the bottom line for EDF is the energy cap uh, energy price cap that was put in place by the French government earlier in the year EDF is selling energy to some of their competitors and now they have to sell it at a loss because of this price cap so for all these reasons the French government decided that they needed to just put some money into EDF and the best way to do it they did put some money already in April, but it's another best way to handle all these issues to just completely renationalize EDFs. And what this was a big announcement that sent the EDF shares up 15% yesterday. It's kind of an uncontroversial one politically in France, so most MPs will go on board with this. And that's one of, that's lucky for Elizabeth Bond because a lot of other things will be controversial and were controversial in her speech yesterday. Uh, they want to push ahead with a pension reform, and we know that's been a big issue in French politics in the first mandate of Emmanuel Macron, they said they will carry on with trying to push for that reform for the second mandate, uh, despite not having the absolute majority in Parliament. Of course, the cost of living crisis, which that uh, renationalization of EDF falls into, this uh, new package is going to be presented later today in Cabinet, uh, new measures that the government wants to put in place to support uh, households uh, in the face of rising inflation, even though, again, Prime Minister is saying that inflation in France at 6%, one of the lowest in the Eurozone, thanks to the energy price price cap. Uh, new measures will be presented and this will be controversial. This will be debated in Parliament next week and there it will be an uphill battle for the government. So all this for, uh, in, in context announced yesterday by Elizabeth Bourne in, in uh, the National Assembly.
Karen. Charlotte, thank you very much. Well, it's not just in France where we're seeing the government step in to uh, shield some of the utility companies and ultimately consumers and businesses. Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has slammed Russia for weaponizing gas in Europe. It comes as Germany's parliament prepares to debate a new energy security law that would allow the state to bail out troubled utility group Uniper. Let's get back out to Jeff. He joins us now from outside the Bundestag in Berlin, from Dusseldorf to, to Berlin. It's been a busy one, Jeff, but the developments there on the ground. Just tell us how strong the government intends to take a position when it comes to Uniper. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, as um, Charlotte was saying, you know, no objections politically in France to uh, the government taking 100% of EDF. But here in Germany, that kind of state stake uh, doesn't sit that comfortably. And Robert Harbeck, the economy minister, even talked about the state now being in the business effectively of expropriation. And I think that shows the concern they have here in Germany that ultimately the dwindling gas supplies coming through the Russian pipeline means that the government has to embrace the cold hard realities of a lack of energy security going forward and ultimately they understand that could push this economy into recession and they understand that they need to react very quickly to that. So we've been talking haven't we over the last few days about whether Uniper will be thrown a financial lifeline by the government and that looks uh, pretty certain at this stage. The question is, is the legislation going to be put in place uh, quickly enough to make that happen soon? And that's why we're in Berlin at the Bundestag because the lower house will be looking at the government's ambitions to change the rules that would, one, let the state take these strategic stakes to keep these companies in the uh, gas business and two how to spread the cost of doing that because that's the other uncomfortable issue here in Germany is that nobody wants ultimately the uh, taxpayer alone to have to pick up the costs but they understand that the burden should be spread fairly so there will be under this legislation an adjustment to the Energy Security Act that would mean that the pricing mechanism could be more flexible and allow the utility companies to pass on the higher costs of securing gas immediately to the end users and the ambition here I think as expressed by uh, Robert Harbeck and Olaf Scholz is to make sure that Germans understand they have to be more careful about how they use this scarce resource. So what we've got here, Karen, is a number of twin-track policy approaches both to financially throw a lifeline to the utility businesses and to make sure that they spread some of the hardship of these higher costs. And it is interesting, just a, a passing footnote, that the gas uh, safety law, which is part of this Energy Security Act, actually finds its origin in the 1970s when we had uh, the oil crisis in Europe and Germany then had to think very hard about how to secure its energy future. And of course, as we know, this, this whole shift that we're now seeing and this anger towards President Putin 
it's all part of a massive handbrake turn that Germany is having to do anyway when it comes to energy because the ambition was to get away from nuclear. It was to move towards uh, carbon neutral by 2045. But inevitably, what's going on now means that they're going to have to run these nuclear power stations for longer. Let's just have a listen here to Chancellor Olaf Scholz as he talks about the changes that are being made. We are adapting the Energy Security Act so that we're able to address and react to supply shortages. We are ensuring that power plants that run on coal can be put to work so that we can save on gas usage this year. We have also ensured that, different to previous years, gas storage facilities must be filled by law, including those under Russian ownership. And through market intervention measures, we've made sure this is actually happening. We've also ensured that we adjust to all new means of gas delivery. We are investing in new import structures to bring gas to Germany in great capacity alongside private companies. We are doing this through new laws that are being swiftly agreed upon here, fast-tracking through all planning permissions, so that we can have the first facilities ready, perhaps as soon as the new year. So they're having to adapt policy very quickly here, and I don't think anybody understates the stakes. Uh, we did hear the economy minister, Robert Harbeck, talking within the last 24 hours about how this situation with energy here in Germany could be compared to the impact of the Lehman crisis in the financial sector globally, i.e. if you have one domino that falls, you have a whole series of dominoes that fall subsequently. And that is why they consider it so important to get financially involved now in the gas sector and to provide this uh, lifeline, uh, as I say, to Uniper to make sure that it doesn't trigger a wave of uh, problematic issues for the utility sector here in Germany, Karen. Jeff, great comparisons. It does feel as though we're revisiting uh, financial crisis bailouts, uh, inflation, 70s alike, and also strike action that we've been seeing across the board as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.